Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. Now, you can check out our course platform at onecommune.com, where you will find programs from Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, Adrian Mishler, and many other brilliant personal development and wellness luminaries. Our courses span yoga, meditation, spiritual development, functional medicine, recovery, and social impact, essentially everything you need to be holistically well. Just go to onecommune.com. Okay, so today on the show, I speak with the love extremist, Ethan Lipsitz. I won't reveal too much biography here in the preamble, since Ethan's lived experience is a significant part of our conversation and highly germane to his work. Ethan is a visual artist, host of the Love Extremist radio podcast, and he moderates gatherings on the Clubhouse app in the Love Extremists Club. In our conversation, Ethan and I unpack the meaning of capital L love as a state of being beyond romantic love, beyond an emotion that arises and subsides in consciousness from moment to moment. We discuss how we can cultivate a life where we are reflexively living from a place of greater love, how we can bring love into our greater public discourse, and the healing properties of love. Ethan is a profoundly inspiring human, as you will soon hear, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. My name is Jeff Krasner, and welcome to Come. Ethan Lipsitz, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You got my name spot on. It's rare that people get that right. Okay, I spelled it phonetically, so you know. No, that's it. You got, I it. got it. Good. Yeah. So, well, with Valentine's Day around the corner, I suppose I, I couldn't be talking to a better person <laughs> than the original love extremist. Uh, of course, we both know that that true love transcends chocolates and roses. <laughs> um, and I hope we can, um, you know, begin to explore today how you've begun to understand and, and define love. Um, but as, I suppose as an on-ramp for our discussion, um, perhaps you could scaffold the conversation in some biography since your life's work and your biography are, are so inextricably intertwined. Yeah, it's always a challenge for me to know where to begin. Um, and I appreciate you um, calling me the, the kind of OG love extremist, although I will say there's a lot of love extremists that came before me. You were, we were just talking about Eric Fromm, um, The Art of Loving, and uh, Bell Hooks, who was inspired by, that, by Eric's work. And I think of Dr. Martin Luther King, who wrote about, if we are to be deemed extremists, may we be extremists for love in his letter from Birmingham Jail. Um, Dr. Cornell West, who speaks about being an extremist for love at Oxford Union. There's just so many incredible influences and in history, especially in civil rights and, and social justice around this conversation. But where I found it uh, was on the top of a mountain in 2015 when I met Christian Picciolini and Matt Chandler, 
Christian Piccolini had left the neo-Nazi movement in Chicago, where he was a leader, when he opened a record store and realized that the people that liked the punk rock he liked didn't look like him, right? They were black and brown and all different backgrounds and religions. And he was like, oh my gosh, we love the same music. How can I hate you? How can I continue on with this you know, neo-Nazi movement? And so he left this group and, and founded actually an organization called Life After Hate and has since been speaking and writing books all about post-neo-Nazism. And Matt Chandler was from the Department of Homeland Security. And so he was talking about under Obama. So he was talking about kind of how the government was using technology to try to keep people from going to ISIS or keep people from getting into extremist hate um, groups as and t potential terrorist groups. And it's interesting how far we've come in terms of how we define what terrorism looks like over the last five, 10 years. I mean, it's very much shifted in our culture. Um, I raised my hand at that talk and I said, so what are you doing to provide alternatives? What are the cool things that people will want to go to that aren't about hate? What does extremist love look like? And there was no answer from either, but I didn't expect one. I just kind of thought this is an interesting thread. What are, what are we doing to provide alternatives for people who are maybe driven towards connection, looking for some place of acceptance and some place of being seen and felt and heard, but are actually really in a dark place and don't really know how to come, come through that. And so they go towards hate instead of love. And I started making these pins and passing them out to friends all over town. And they said extremists with a heart around them. And then for the first two years, it was this open source question. What does it mean to be a love extremist? And people would have all different kinds of answers. And we'd engage and we got celebrities wearing the pins and it was this cool project and I was the love extremist which great I was happy to be that but I was also an entrepreneur and many other things then in 2017 I uh, suffered a seizure in my sleep and woke up the next day to discover I had a brain tumor two weeks from then I was under the knife in Boston getting my head cut open Two weeks from then, I got a diagnosis that I had a grade three anaplastic astrocytoma, which is a type of brain cancer, where the prognosis is usually have about three to five years, and then it comes back worse and usually kills you. So I realized very quickly in that time that my life was going to change and love extremism was going to become something more than just an idea or a question. It was going to become the fuel from which I would survive. And what made it so clear was that I had to actually learn how to prioritize my health and love myself. And that was going to be the first step of survival. And so in doing that, and I know you have experienced something similar in your life, there is a certain um, reckoning that, that occurs when you've never learned or been trained how to love yourself the process of learning how to do that and how to prioritize one's health and how to change your diet and change where you're spending your time completely shifted everything for me. So I'm speaking a lot, but this is kind of what catalyzed me into taking on love extremism as a life purpose. And since then, there's been a lot of other developments, um, learning about social justice, learning about um, my identity as a, a white redheaded Jew, um, <laughs> you know, all of these different 
questions around health and well-being. So there's a lot to get into here, but that's kind of the, the catalyst of me becoming a love extremist. Yeah, thank you, Ethan, for laying that, that groundwork. And there, yeah, indeed, there's a lot of different threads to, to pick up on there. I suppose I would just ask before we, we follow one or multiple, uh, just ask you how your, your physiological health is now. Thank you for asking. Yeah. So most, this is an interesting question because a lot of people, when they hear about someone with a brain tumor, brain cancer, will say, so are you done with it? Are you past it? Did you beat it? And the real answer to that is it is a daily process of beating it. Um, And so I am in a situation where I am in a maintenance mode and I maintain a low carb ketogenic diet. I take certain medication every day. I get a scan in my brain every six months, an MRI. And so far, the tumor is shrinking and or staying as is, and I'm just controlling it. Um, Through surgery and radiation and chemo, we probably reduced the size of it by 50 to 70%. And I'm now just working to keep any tumor from growing and keep my body in a state where it's hard for tumors to grow. And it's, it's not kind of a supportive environment for cancer. Whereas before I realized maybe my diet and my behaviors and my health patterns and the ways I was treating myself kind of allowed cancer to grow unchecked. So yes, doing great. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. Well, coincidentally, right before we started recording, my father called me and uh, he was diagnosed with colon cancer two years ago. And has gone through a process and uh, proton therapy, and he just got the results of his last PET scan and a call from his um, physician this morning, and he is officially cancer free <laughs> for the moment. Um, so he was, um, yeah, it was great. It was a wonderful call to get, and um, and like he he echoed a lot of the sentiments that 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 you just um, articulated of like, this is a process, you know, it's, it's tamed for now. Um, But again, it requires quite a significant amount of self love. And, you know, to be honest, you know, my dad's 78. um, You know, he was raised with you know, different ideas about diet and about what self-love actually means. And so he's had to really change what that, what that looks like for him. Um, you know, cutting out sugar and, and other things in his diet. So, you know, I, I think that maybe you could just spend a moment sort of describing the the dimensions of self-love because i think that that a there's like confusion about what that actually really means and then there's also a sense of um that self-love uh can be indulgent or something like that i'm not Mm -hmm. sure that's the right word but you know often people put themselves at the bottom of their own priority list because they think it's selfish to put themselves on top and they've got to do, they got to check off this work box or these other boxes and, and they tend to deprioritize themselves. So I wonder if you could just take a moment and address um, that notion of, of self-love. I'd be happy to. 
So there's a cliche statement that says you can't love someone else until you love yourself. And I think while I agree with that statement, I think it's very vague. And I also think that we don't actually know how to love until we kind of have, are in relationship with other people. So we learn about love through connecting with others. That being said, I would say if we aren't able to prioritize our needs and the health of our body and our systems in our body, we are less effective in doing our work, in loving, in you know, bringing impact to the planet, in creating, in any of the things we want to do. So once we become conscious of all of the things that get in the way of our thriving, then it becomes a process of working on those things. And so while I wouldn't say necessarily self-care is the same as self-love, I do believe that there are, there are some similarities, and I think it is important for us to, you know, treat ourselves to baths and, you know, spa treatments or whatever it is that makes us feel comfortable and enjoy in our bodies. And there's some very important mental and physical practices that I think we all should be consistently doing as a spring cleaning or a, you know, an, a quarterly clean to ensure that we are in our best health. And that is ultimately for ourselves and for self enhancing self-love. And so what I mean by that is starting with kind of a mental check. Right when I got sick, I, I knew I needed to work on my psychology just as much as I needed to work on my physical body and my brain health. And so a lot of that meant learning about emotional stuff and going to a therapist and working with someone who was a trained professional and picking apart some of the challenges that I may have been facing in my life that I wasn't able to process because I just didn't have an objective mind to work with through them. So going to therapy is a self-loving practice. Then I thought about, okay, what is coming up through therapy? I'm learning that I have to forgive. Not only do I have to forgive others who maybe I'm holding resentment towards, but I also have to forgive myself for the way I treated myself or the things that I may have done to myself. I have to let go of the resentments that keep me unhealthy. Disease is also two words, dis-ease. And anything that keeps me in dis-ease uh, could be resentment. It could be um, lack of forgiveness, lack of forgiveness for myself or for someone else. It could be lack of patience. I realized in order to heal, I was going to need to learn how to be patient. And being patient is not easy when you're an entrepreneur and you're on the go and you just want to get things done. And it's like, actually, no, you have to sit down and be in your body and allow yourself to heal. And that takes time. I'm regenerating nerves through my body from my brain to my leg. And that takes time. I'm still getting small micro seizures and being patient and allowing them to come is what allows me to heal. So a lot of this was psychological work and recognizing the importance of patience, forgiveness, um, also boundaries. That was the third one that came through the psychological work, learning about boundaries. And boundaries mean really understanding what is essential, what is generative in my life, what is important for me to focus my time on, and what might be taking away from my well-being and my health. And that could be anything from relationships to work to just looking at the calendar and saying, okay, do I have to have this call? Do I have to do this exercise? Do I have to go on this errand? You know, what are the things that are going to keep me feeling great 
And what are the things that I can start to release and let go of and actually create boundaries around because I don't feel great with them. So that was the psychological side. Then there's the physical health. And in the physical health, there's all sorts of ways that we can start to approach it. There's, of course, diet. I completely changed my diet. I started doing intermittent fasting and went into a deep therapeutic ketogenic diet, which is supportive for my body type and my tumor type, but it's not the answer to all cancer. So I just want to put that out there. There's different cancers that require different um, nutritional changes. Um, but that definitely helped me. I did some intermittent fasting as well as some long-term fasts, some 72-hour 72, 72 fasts, which helped the chemotherapy and the radiation um, while they were happening. And then I also got into exercise and physical therapy and taking certain supplements and engaging with uh, certain plant medicines that could help me uh, and looking at alternative therapies beyond what the doctors would tell me. So exploring studies that were underway and trying, really in any Western medical system, you have to be your own advocate and you have to go out of your way to discover everything you can about your disease so that you can learn what's underway. What are clinical trials I could explore or what's a protocol that people are using in England or in France or in Cuba where this might help me reduce my, my tumor. And so just studying all these, these things really helped me focus in and realize mind, body, and then spirit, which is kind of a combo, uh, as you know, and, and, and getting into practices that really help me feel in alignment with my, my purpose and with my day. And so one practice that I loved and I was challenged to do by a teacher was find my perfect day. And that is a very simple but challenging exercise of just trying to articulate what are the ingredients of a perfect day and how can I find them in my normal routine and tease them out and allow them to come into every day. So that could be meditation, that could be going for a walk, that could be eating something you love, that could be just sitting you know, in, the, in nature, it could be, t you know, holding my partner's hand. It could be being with my dog. There's so many things that make a perfect day and everyone has a different definition and those perfect days evolve. So as my life started to come back together, I started to envision bigger, grander, more scary, but awesome perfect days. And I have lots of fun stories about that. Yeah. I think I read somewhere that you recommend trying to live your perfect day or the best you can once a week, <laughs> which I thought was a a um, uh, a good goal. It, it might sometimes unachievable, but but I thought I thought that was a good goal. You can pull one ingredient from each day and put that in your whole week, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which may may seem more more practical at times. Performance Kitchen is creating the next generation of frozen food, combining great taste, whole food, nutrition, and convenience. Performance Kitchen meals feature 100% grass-fed beef and lamb, antibiotic-free pork and chicken, wild-caught fish, plant-forward options, and reduced sodium and sugar. It is Performance Kitchen's mission to change the way we eat by making remarkable frozen meals that are truly nutritious and taste delicious. Performance Kitchen works with a team of chefs, doctors, and registered dietitians to develop a variety of frozen ready-made entrees with real wholesome ingredients inspired by the Mediterranean diet. 
Their meals are prepared in small batches and flash frozen to lock in both flavor and nutrition. Crafted is Performance Kitchen's premium small batch line featuring handcrafted frozen meals that are created by chefs and registered dietitians and approved with targeted nutrition solutions for a variety of eating needs, including plant-based, keto, low FODMAP, maternity health, renal diet, nitrate-free, AIP, Whole30, and more. Use Commune20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Go to performancekitchen.com. You know, it's funny as, as I have been thinking through the idea of self-love and, and really trying to understand it and, you know, going back to that cliche that, that you, um, that you alluded to that, you know, you can't really love somebody else until you love yourself and, and, you know, trying to understand what the genesis of that cliche really was. Um, and I wrote something a couple of weeks ago when I was sort of meditating on love a bit and, um, and it seemed to strike something with me. And then I had to subsequently kind of unpack it a bit, which is that sort of true love, this kind of capital L love emerges out of the absence of need. And, you know, I, I wrote that and a couple of people asked me, well, you know, what in the devil did you mean when you said that? And I had to actually think about it a little bit more. And, you know, you mentioned Eric Fromm, um, in in your in your preamble um and uh so i started reading you know the art of loving a little bit and which is a, a book i believe it was written in the 1950s though i'm not completely sure and you know he he really talks about um that it the state that we normally live in is a as a is a perceived sense of separateness that we believe that we are individuals separate from each other, separate from nature, separate from God. Um, and from this notion of separateness, we are always in search of the antidote, of some sort of strategy to address this notion of isolation that we inherently have. And one of the strategies to address that notion of separateness is love and it's often you know romantic love i I kind of think of like that jerry Maguire scene when tom cruise is sort of tearfully bearing his soul to renee zellweger and he says you complete me you know (laughs) um and but i think what that speaks to is that we are often looking to address our own deficiencies or our own needs in relationship so like oh my mother left me like i need that nurturing mother in my life i'm gonna find that woman who can provide that or you know i don't feel good about myself i'm not confident i don't think i can step up into my full potential so i need someone in my life to tell me that i'm good enough so you know so we're always sort of infilling and you know when you talk about self-love or forgiving yourself or, you know, I suppose eschewing your own or, or basing your own identity, not on what other people think. And you start to, you know, really generate 
a kind of self-love, it becomes then easier for you to engage in relationship, whether that's romantic relationship or friendship relationship, without the need for someone else to sort of check all of these boxes for you. And you can really move into a state of being that is very giving, that brings sort of an effusiveness to bring joy uh, to suffering. Um, And so as I've started to kind of understand self-love, it's almost like removing your own neediness. And uh, I wonder if that if there's any part of that that rings true in your own lived experience. Absolutely. And I very much resonate that with that, especially on an interpersonal love level. When we are thinking about our relationships or finding love, especially in romantic contexts, this idea of not showing up needy, I mean, for sure. Like we know when someone's needy and it's not attractive, you know, it's like, ugh, I'm being imposed on, right? That being said, through my experience with my diagnosis and with brain cancer, I needed a lot of people and I didn't necessarily ask for them. So that was an interesting, there was a few moments when I remember reaching out to a friend because I was scared. I was feeling seizure-y and I, I wanted, I was alone in my house and I wanted someone to come by and just watch me and be with me in case something went haywire. And I called him and I said, hey man, can you come over? I'm just a little nervous. And he said, I'll be right over. And I broke down in tears after him hanging up the phone because I was so unused to asking for help when I really needed it and having someone be so willing to show up for me like that. And so while I agree with you that sometimes like finding love in a romantic or in an impersonal way is this absence of need, I also think there's something deeply loving in being able to address someone's needs and show up for someone when their need is real. And I think that's kind of the, it's almost a conversation and time is the element. And it's like, I've lived so much of my life in a state of giving or not needing so that when I did need, people were at the ready to offer it, even if I didn't ask for it. And I was incredibly grateful and fortunate to have that. But if I came from a different circumstance or lived experience and I had much more need in my life through, you know, whether it would be economic or um, cultural or educational or whatever it would be, opportunities that that didn't come to me because of, I'd say, often my privilege or my background, then my relationship to need would be different. And I think it's important to recognize that it's not so easy to just eradicate need and find love. I think it's more so how do we build up how do we build up a practice of, of giving or offering ourselves and being generous when we are able so that when our inevitable needs come up, they can be met and it doesn't feel desperate. It doesn't feel like too much. It doesn't feel oppressive or, or that's not the right word, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel abusive. Yeah, that's really well said. And actually really helps me <laughs> with my own definition as I continue to sort of audit the concept of it. Um, I mean, I suppose it's really part of love is 
that recognition that we are all connected by a power that's greater than us and that there is sometimes a seesawing between being the one providing love, being the lover and being the beloved. And, you know, certainly that was true in my relationship with my wife, who that's a very, that's known for its longevity. We've been together for 33 years, especially Maybe. early on when we were younger and not as self-confident. There was a seesawing between lover and beloved, you know, that would be sometimes quite extreme. And, um, and you know, we were always willing to be, I suppose, protean in the role that we would play. Um, you know, on that playground. So, yeah, thank you for for helping me understand that more. Um, (laughs) You know, you spoke about love, um, and I I think about it in terms of the public vernacular, you know, and you mentioned Martin Luther King, who was obviously a hero for you and for me, for so many people. Or I think of like Robert Kennedy, you know, there was an era where love was very much in the public political discourse. Um, and now, you know, that would be more of an eye roll. Although I think it was, it's interesting the times that, that Trump used love and things, but we don't necessarily have to touch, touch on that. But it, there, it's sort of a paradox because we almost overuse the word in some senses like you know i love my new shoes i love this sweatshirt i love this new app on my phone i love clubhouse i love lavender oil whatever and um so we sort of overuse it in one context and then sort of underuse it in another context when it seems to be the most meaningful like we're almost bashful or ashamed to use it like on the political stage or in you know really highly emotional situations so I wonder what your feelings are on just love in the public vernacular and what would be the most healthy use of the word. Great question. I actually just released a video last week or this week about the eye roll, right? What's with the eye roll? And I also want to recognize Biden did speak of healing and love in his inaugural speech. And so we are, I would say, in a moment of reconditioning and reconsidering what love looks like. I am also very actively speaking to corporations and organizations about how love belongs in the workplace. And there is a more general awareness of that because we've all been dislocated and isolated and into this moment of universal challenge with the pandemic. And so there is a recognition that our emotional identities can't forever be disconnected from our professional or civic identities. And I think similarly so, it's time for us to reclaim love as a fierce force for change and not just um, this kind of word that we throw around or something that we solely associate with romance or you know, foods or, you know, the things that, you know, get us, get us going. So to me, 
there's a, there's always the concern of the overusage of the word. And I, I agree. I think in many cultures, love has tons of words. And in our culture, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of different words for it. And, and we have infinite definitions for it. But my existence and the reason why I use extremist next to it is because I want us to start looking at love with a certain ferocity, with a certain seriousness and gravity, and an understanding that love is actually metal. As my partner Michelle says, love is metal. Love is punk rock. And love is, love is hard. Love is dark. Love is the challenging choice. To go, I, I'm actually working on a Valentine's Day project called Unlikely Valentine. And I'm challenging people to think, who would be the last person on your list to send a Valentine message to? And challenging them to do it, to like go out of their way and send that, you know, like, because this is the real challenge of love, is being able to find someone who you're really actually having a hard time feeling related to and connected to, and being able to show up and say, hey, we have a common humanity. What you said about kind of our interconnectedness maybe being beyond us, I agree that there are forces beyond us, but there's also our responsibility. And I think it's very important to have agency in our interconnectedness. And that's what this conversation is about for me and recognizing we're human. We are of the same species, regardless of our lived experience. Our lived experience is important and we can still connect and give each other an ear give each other a message, give each other an open mind and show up as we'd like to be treated. And so to me, there is a reclamation of what love looks like that needs to happen and a reintroduction into public life, into our work life, into civics, into our national politics. And um, that is the work of the love extremist movement, but I would say anyone who's alive today. Yeah, <clears throat> that's beautiful. And it really speaks, really speaks to me. Um, it's obvious that, you know, in the past year, particularly as we've been in quarantine and living in a lot of isolation, people's communities have migrated in many respects to social media, which is not the most effective forum or platform for respectful public discourse. It's really hard to find common humanity um, when we're just kind of all caps barbing each other or, you know, posting memes, telling each other to wake the fuck up or whatever it happens to be. And so, you know, I think it's really important to figure out ways to reinstantiate like love into our common discourse and i wonder what your strategies might be for that and why you think that we tend to form groups of people that are in and out um and how you look at that yeah well i think affiliation to any particular organization or network or nation or belief system is powerful medicine. And people like to be in the club 
They like to be included. They like to feel that connection. And ultimately, there is love within these internal networks, these um, communities that exist. And there's also the people who are not welcome. And so this is my inherent issue with how we often frame love. We look at love as something that needs to be hoarded for our family and our intimates and maybe our friends. And it's reserved for those folks. And we're not able to recognize that the strangers also need love or the humans on the other side of the planet also need love. And actually, this is kind of the sake of our, the question of our time is how are we going to be able to break down the things that keep us in these tribal frameworks, whether they be nations or religions or institutions, and enable us to connect as human beings. And the way I look at this is twofold. I look at it from the micro level of human to human interaction and getting out of our comfort zone and into spaces where we are in the minority or where we are engaging with people who aren't like us, who have different backgrounds and different lived experiences. And we show up curious and open-minded. As Valerie Kaur, the incredible sick leader and writer of the book, See No Stranger, says, wonder. Wonder brings us back to love. And so showing up anywhere in the world with curiosity, open-mindedness, or wonder enables us to connect with people who are unlike us and actually create frameworks for love. Simultaneously, we need to recognize that this is a planetary concern. And when we start to break up into tribes, there is certain value and function in that breaking up, but there is also an inherent system that disconnects us from each other and that creates in-groups and out-groups. And so we need to be very uh, aware of how we are disconnecting from certain groups when we create frameworks, when we create groups, when we organize, and thinking about how we can actually build inclusion in spaces where it's historically not a practice. And that goes for any ideology, right? You could be the most liberal, open-minded person, but you still are likely have people who you aren't comfortable with or spaces where you're not going to go. And same goes for folks on other sides of the spectrum. And so I just think it's really important for us to be able to pause and recognize every single human on this planet is here because they are in search for love. And whether they express that search through the most toxic and detrimental practices, or they express that search through organization and celebration and connectivity, it doesn't quite matter. I think the recognition that we're all here for love and we're all thirsty to connect with love and be seen and be recognized and be accepted as we are, that recognition will carry us into a new way of being. And our affiliations won't be how we define ourselves. We will define ourselves based on our passions, based on how we celebrate our life. And the celebration of having breath, the fact that we have access to water, to clean air, to a place to live, to food, to healthcare, to the things that we need to thrive, enables us to connect as human beings. And if we don't have that access, it's on all of us to find ways to bring it to each other. And as we said earlier, to feed needs when we have access to them, and then to be able to articulate needs when we don't. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that 
because we are seeking community that we often pin ourselves with some form of identity in the quest for that community. So I have this particular political affiliation or this particular religious affiliation because that gives me a context in which to create this sense of community. Mm-hmm. And when we step behind that, that is where actually when we find more universal commonality. And, and I often find that that is true inside of story. Like I actually spend a good chunk of my personal time talking with people that I don't agree with. <laughs> and one of the techniques that I use is real active listening kind of listening to understand instead of listening to respond. But then really inside of that listening, looking for places of commonality, even if Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, well, I was born in Chicago too. Or, yeah, I remember when my car broke down on the highway. I mean, you know, things that might seem completely superficial and, and superfluous, you know, against... Uh, you know, the context, within the context of what might typically, you know, divide us, but still it, it creates, you know, a sense of commonality. Oftentimes, but this happens, this is very true within our families or in the love we feel for our children, or if we have a parent who is suffering in some fashion, there can be a lot to bond around there, even if like between someone who's on the alt-right and someone who's an activist on the left, they, there's something behind those affiliations. But I guess one of my questions for you, and this is something that I've had, um, you know, I suppose philosophical discussions about, and, um, but specifically as it relates to forgiveness, but I suppose there's the question here as it pertains to love too, is, is everyone deserving of love? despite any reprehensible action that they might have engaged in or something awful that they might have said, does everyone deserve love? I believe so. And I believe that those reprehensible actions largely come from a disconnection from love or perhaps um, a lack of a lack of kind of foundational love in their life. And so they're acting from a place of grasping, of, you know, trying to get it in often um, disconnected, disassociated, or perhaps, you know, diseased, diseased ways. So we, it's a requirement, I would say, for us to get back on track. And it is very much not only deserving, but integral to our healing. So just as love is integral to my survival as a human being, love is integral to the survival of our human species. And if we start to make decisions as to who deserves or doesn't deserve love, um, we get into a system of, uh, I would say, a a very oppressive system. and, and one that looks a bit like our criminal justice system does today. Um, and so, uh, yes, I think we're in a situation where 
there are what people would consider morally or otherwise reprehensible actors who act in bad faith. But if we were to, as I did, start with the mental concern of a self-love practice for those individuals and unpack what catalyzed their behaviors, we would actually see quickly that they're just coming from either a lack of love in their life or a kind of misunderstanding of what love looks like and a disconnection to how to find it in an effective and healthy way. And there's also, I think, important to recognize we all have reprehensible tendencies and abilities and um, activities. And, the, you know, no, we all are existing in this spectrum of time and experience. And we may be unknowingly exploiting the planet in the most reprehensible of ways and face the consequences through tragedies to our homes, right? Or tragedies to, you know, the earth and the planet around us, right? You know so well. So I think it's important for us to recognize that the, the delineation with which something becomes okay and not okay is very questionable. And I do believe there are universal um, contexts with which we can start to align ourselves around what is loving. And it, we actually have an internal compass for that, and we're built and designed for that. Yet, there's a lot of work to get the, rid of the weeds and untangle all the ropes and curtains that are in the way and the, the things we do to numb out from actually connecting authentically to the love that we all deserve. Yeah. I mean, you had obviously a, a couple of inflection points um, that put you on a path to living from love, living from a place of love. And, you know, oftentimes I, I suppose it takes humans to endure or experience some form of crisis um, in order to, uh, in order to change their sort of behavior. Um, but I wonder if you have sort of actionable ways that kind of regular people that, that aren't necessarily going through, you know, a health diagnosis or, or, you know, a loss or grief in their life can, can adopt to more consistently live from a place of love. And, it, and in a way, I keep thinking of it like, if I can practice love every day, it starts to become sort of a reflexive behavior. It starts to somehow become unconscious and appear just as a normal state of being for me kind of prior to the level of conscious behavior or conscious action. So I wonder if there's things that one can put into their day that, that helps develop this sort of habit, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, a lot of people talk about gratitude practice, and I believe in that. I think being in touch with what you're grateful for, either at the beginning or the end of every day, setting intentions um, and then along with that. So usually I'll write down five things I'm grateful for at the end of the day, 
and then maybe an intention for the next day or something I want to just think about that came through in that day. That's a very powerful way of just being in a state of gratitude and recognizing that and then being able to emanate that outwards. I think in my lived experience, checking in with mortality was one of the most powerful ways of writing my ship towards love. And there's things like death meditation that one can do. It's, it, it's, it's challenging to get into a space where you choose to do a death meditation on a regular basis. However, the impact of doing such a practice brings you closer into a conscious life and brings you in gra- a space of gratitude for the life you have. So for example, my partner actually just got me a calendar called 4K Weeks, and it's a really cool calendar that basically shows how many weeks you've lived and how many weeks you have left if you live to 100. And so I look at that every day. It's in my studio, and I, I think, wow, you know, this is my life laid out in weeks. And it, it helps these types of practices that help us recognize our time in these bodies are limited, and we have a choice. We can either enjoy it and make the most of it, or we can sacrifice it and you know begrudgingly go with it. And while sometimes choices are imposed on us, there's always space to reorient and get into environments where we may have a bit more sovereignty. Now, I am speaking from, as I said earlier, a white cis man's body. So I am very conscious of the privileges that I hold to practice love without too much obstacle. And I know that there are people who live in sites of oppression in all different dimensions and frameworks. Um, I am a Jewish man. I have seen some anti-Semitism in my life, but that's not a site of oppression that I experience daily. But those who do experience daily, even hourly or minute by minute oppressions, the challenge or the, the concept of me saying you can just choose to reorient your, your direction towards more love is, is naive and gaslighting. So I, I, I don't accept that this is the process for all people, but I do believe that there are things we can do in, in terms of how we orient our time and our attention to elevate our own practices of love for ourselves. And as we go out in the world, that does start to show up. And it does, I have experienced it start to kind of, we reflect, we're all mirrors for each other. And so even just bringing a smile or a hello, or you know, our body language being open to connection can spark a different way of being uh, with others. And so thinking about body language, thinking about daily practices, thinking about kind of what does self-love look like and how can we tune our bodies to be in self-love and gratitude, those are some things that can help. And being real that not every day is gonna be easy and we're faced with challenges and every single person has unique challenges and you know i got the one with disease and others have some with you know identity and and others have some with family and so i think it's just valuable to recognize we're all going through a challenging experience and the love is in being able as you said to get to the story to be able to connect on the story level and and hear each other fully 
and not in a patronizing way, but in an authentic, I'm here, I'm here to hold your space for your story. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, what I have learned, if anything, over this past year is that people just want to be heard. They, they really just want to be seen. And, you know, I suppose as I was listening to you talk about our, like, also me as a white cis man who's Jewish, um, we have a lot in common there. Um, but I do also recognize the privilege that I get to in some ways self-actualize or self-realize that my path towards that the top of Maslow's pyramid is is more unimpeded than other paths. And yeah, we need shelter and food and health, but then along that pyramid, we really need belonging. And I think, you know, one of the most noble things that one can do is that if one does have the opportunity to live kind of in this space that makes love more accessible, then what we can do in turn is turn around and provide that sense of belonging for others such that they can also live from that same place. Um, so thank you, because I hadn't really clicked in that way until, you know, I heard you speak about it. And, um, but it feels a lot more clear for me now. So I appreciate that. And that's, a, that's our responsibility. Like our responsibility as people who have the less impeded path towards Maslow's hierarchy of self-actualization. And I would say this became really clear to me when I went to Burning Man. As cliche as this sounds, you know, you go to Burning Man and you realize that everywhere you go, for the most part, you're welcome. You can walk into someone's camp, start a conversation, sit down on their dusty chair and get into a new dimension. And to imagine coming when I came back, when I reintegrated into society after the first time I went to Burning Man, I essentially realized, oh, everywhere I go can feel like my living room. And that is both an incredibly privileged thing to say, but also something that I realize if I can show up and make it feel like we're in my living room, wherever we are, then I am extending that hospitality with my body. And that I think is a powerful thing. So for those of us who have the capacity to show up and be hospitable to the world, we're able to hold others in their stories, in their challenges, as you said, really see others and, and be welcoming to them and recognize that, yeah, come on into the living room. Like we're all human, we're all going through it. We don't agree politically, but have some tea, you know, like let's chat. And I think there's something really powerful, whether it's Burning Man or some other journey that you go on when you recognize that you can hold space for other people just in your body and in your presence. You get into a state of walking through the world with a greater sense of ease and love and connectivity to people who may not be your people. Thanks a lot for listening to my conversation with Ethan Lipsitz. You can keep up with him at ethanlipsitz.com and be sure to check him out on the Clubhouse app. He is hosting some great conversations over there. Feel free to reach out to me anytime with comments or suggestions at jeffk at onecommune.com. I will read every email. And that's all from the commune for this week. 
My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.